Good morning, church. I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 19. I'll be reading that text this morning. What a great song we just sung in preparation for our message this morning, that we would turn our eyes upon Jesus. If you did not bring a Bible, there's a Bible in the seat in front of you. I believe it's on page 905. Again, invite you to follow along as I read before Jason comes up and preaches. When I'm done reading verses 1 through 16, I will lead us in a time of prayer. John chapter 19. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail! king of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him. For I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he he has made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, "You You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in in Aramaic Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, behold your king. They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. Join me in prayer. Father, we have all been hurt by the um, actions of others. Yet, Father, in all of history, there has never been a greater unjust verdict than the one we just read of crucifying the Son of God. And Father, all of us have been in that place before you called us to yourself where we mocked your name, we didn't listen to your words, let alone obey them, and we even said in our hearts, away with you. Father, I thank you for your incredible love, grace, and mercy that you have shown us by saving us from our sins. Father, I pray that 
we will listen intently to this message this morning. Thank you for Jason. Thank you for the time he has spent this week in preparation to serve us and to serve you from your word. Father, I would echo his prayer and thanking you for the generations that are here this morning. I pray that you would allow the children to pay special attention to this message, for it is for them. For our teenagers as well, that they would be free from distraction and listen to your word proclaimed this morning, for it is for them. For each of us as adults, young and old alike, that we would listen intently and that you would bring about the change in our hearts that we need. Father, I pray that your word will bring about conviction where it is needed, that it will bring about encouragement where it is needed. And Father, as we leave this place today, that there would be worship and praise on our lips and on our hearts for all that you have done in and through us because of Jesus. We love you. We thank you. And Father, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. How far are you willing to go to protect what is most important to you? How far are you willing to go to protect what is most important to you? What, what will you do to fight for what is most important to you? And I wonder what things... Or what people come to mind when I ask that question. What would you give? What would you sacrifice in order to protect your most important possessions? Today as we continue the arrest and crucifixion narrative in John, we get to see the lengths that three parties would go to in order to fight for what is most valuable to them. As we look at Pontius Pilate, as we look at the Jewish leaders, and as we look at Jesus, we see some uh, disturbing behaviors and some glorious mercies. And my hope and prayer is that we would not simply sit today as passive observers of the behavior of another, even as Dan prayed, uh, that we would see ourselves in this passage. Jesus has been handed over to Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor of Judea, appointed by Emperor Tiberius. The Jewish leaders, having carried out a sham trial and finding Jesus guilty, leave him in the hands of Pilate. They themselves do not have legal authority under Roman rule to execute Jesus. They're going to need it to be done by the Romans. This whole event takes place during the Jewish Passover feast. The crowd has already demanded the release of Barabbas, the criminal, instead of Jesus. And today, we examine the lengths that we go to, we go to, in order to protect what we most value. Through the actions of Pilate, 
the Jewish leaders, and Jesus. Pontius Pilate was not a friend of the Jewish people. Do you know that? In this passage, it's like buddy-buddy, right? Pontius Pilate and the Jews working together. Uh, The Jewish people did not like Pontius Pilate. He even had a violent history with them. We, We see Jesus' words in Luke chapter 13 mentioning an incident where Pilate murdered some Galileans who were making sacrifices. It's likely that Pilate was in uh, Jerusalem during the Passover to keep the peace, to make sure that everything was in good order, make sure that there were no uprisings or revolts. He knew that his position as a Roman governor was prestigious and precarious. If something had happened under his watch, he could lose his job quite easily. And so he was likely in Jerusalem to make sure that that did not happen during the Passover. So what do we notice about Pilate? And as you read this passage, maybe you read it throughout the week. I hope you did. Would encourage you to do so as you prepare yourself. Next week, we'll be reading up through uh, verse 28, 29, 27. Third time's a charm. Uh, Verse 27, I would encourage you to prepare. But as you see in this passage, what what do you note about Pontius Pilate? I think the first thing that that is quickly noticeable in this passage, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, is that Pilate does not think very much of Jesus, right? Do we see that in this passage? That he doesn't have a high regard for Jesus, at least at first, but really throughout. He has no regard for Jesus. It says here in verse 1 that Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. Now, the question is, does that mean that Pilate flogged Jesus? I think it's very possible, if not likely, that this particular flogging actually happened at the hands of Pilate. That that he did it himself. Uh, it, It says that he did. He was looking to make a spectacle of Jesus. And it also should be noted that this flogging does not have to be necessarily the same one that's referred to in Matthew chapter 27 or Mark chapter 15. It was not uncommon for there to be a lighter flogging that was administered and then a full flogging, which would be the one that we're probably more familiar with as he has already been convicted and and before he is crucified uh, where he was beaten within an inch of his life. This would have been more of a uh, a punitive, a a small punishment type of flogging. And it makes sense. The person of Pilate that we see in the scripture, it makes sense that he would say, I'll do it. I'll show everybody who's in charge of this situation. Behind closed doors, Pilate allows for Jesus to be crowned with a crown of thorns. Mockingly hailed, hit, clothed in a purple robe. These are words probably that lots of us have read a number of times and they lose some of their impact. But, but here, here you have Jesus being mocked and hit, crowned with thorns. Put a robe on them. These soldiers are making light. 
pretending to hail him as king. That's an indignity no matter who the person is, right? Nobody would want to be treated in that way. But it's an indignity all the more because of who the person is. Pilate goes out to the people. A little side note and challenge. I brought this up a couple weeks ago. Maybe kids. Maybe in this afternoon you can reread chapter 18, verse 28 through chapter 19, verse 16, and see how many times John references Pilate going out and coming in. Pilate keeps going back and forth in this account. He goes outside to the Jews, inside to Jesus. Outside to the Jews, outside, inside to Jesus. Brings Jesus out, goes back in. It's, it's, you can count it. You can tell me how many times you find it. Pilate goes out to the people and he tells them that he wants them to know that he finds no guilt in this man. But not just that, right? You have your Bibles open? Verse 4, Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Further indignity, right? He's like, look, I'm going to bring him out to you. You're king. Here he is. Look what we've done to him. Your king. He trots Jesus out to them in mock display. Behold the man. Pilate has no idea how appropriate that statement is. We're going to come back to that. Pilate's posture toward Jesus and the Jews in this passage is one of arrogance and superiority. He seeks to make a fool of Jesus, and he seeks to embarrass the Jews, right? He says, take him and crucify him yourself. What's the problem with that? They're not allowed. Oh yeah, that's right, you're at my mercy. But it's also possible that Pilate's saying, you don't care about justice. What do you, what do you go ahead, kill him. You've come this far, why not finish the job? But Pilate has no regard for Jesus or the Jewish people. So he presents Jesus. Yeah, this would be the type of king you Jews would have. Look at him. Pathetic. Puny. My soldiers are manhandling this guy. Twice in verses 4 and 6, Pilate pronounces Jesus innocent. He says it twice. He's not guilty. Twice in verses 5 and 14, he openly mocks Jesus. We're supposed to see in this passage Pilate saying, look at this guy. You want to kill him? For what? What power does he have? What threat is he? Look, we've battered this guy. We've mocked this guy. And he hasn't done a thing. You know why? Because he's pathetic and powerless. So just let him go. We know people who have this posture toward Jesus. Maybe some in this room right now. Those who think it's pathetic to believe that Jesus can do anything for us. 
or anything to us. But we notice in this passage that Pilate's posture changes a little bit when he hears that Jesus not only claimed to be a king, but what else? The Son of God. Mm. That got his ears perked up. What a bold claim. Now, if you interact with people who say, listen, Jesus was just a good man, right? Good guy, good teacher, good, maybe a good prophet, but he never said he was the Son of God. This is a great passage to take him to. His fiercest enemies understood that he was claiming to be the Son of God, right? They were not under any uh, false impressions. Of, he, no, he's just a good guy who needs to be corrected. No. He says he's the Son of God. He was claiming that. And now Pilate hears it, and he's much more nervous, at least temporarily. Why would Pilate care about that? What does he care about what Jesus claimed? Why? Do you know why? Any thoughts? Think about it. Well, Pilate was a very good Roman. And in Roman mythology, oftentimes, what would happen? The gods would become people, right? Now, this was mythology, but a good Roman would say, well, maybe, maybe it's not mythology. We've got to be careful. We've got we to appease the gods. And could it be that this, this Jesus is one of the pantheon visiting me in person, looking to see how I will handle his situation? And he goes to Jesus and he asks a great question. Where are you from? Where did you, what, you come from? And we know the answer. He came from the Father. He is the eternal Son of God. He made all things and He upholds all things by the power of His hand. He was upholding Pilate at that very moment. But Jesus gave him no answer. Like a sheep before its shearers is silent, so He opened not His mouth. Pilate tries to provoke Jesus by reminding him, I've got the authority to release you, and I've got the authority to crucify you. So we need to take note before we address what Jesus says in response. Pilate is acknowledging here, I could release you, and I can crucify you. Not based on the sentiments of the people standing outside of this building, but based on what's True. But he didn't. He didn't release him based on what was true. And a reminder to all of us. So Pilate had the authority to just say, this is ridiculous. This man's not guilty. Go. But he didn't do it. Because what was true was not most important to him in that moment. And it's important for us to know that something isn't true or not true based on how it makes us feel 
or the consequences that it will bring about in our lives. The question we need to ask ourselves over and over and over again is, is it true? And if it is, then we submit to that truth. But that was not on Pilate's heart or mind. He had already said, what is truth, right? He had already shown his dismissiveness to truth. Pilate had, by God's giving, the authority to release Jesus or to have him crucified. From that point on, Pilate sought to release Jesus, kind of. The Jewish people decide, so he's saying, listen, there's no guilt in this man. No guilt in this man. Once again, I want you to know there's no guilt in this man. The Jewish people decide to hit him where it hurts. If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes him a king, makes himself a king, opposes Caesar. Basically, they're saying to him, we're going to tell on you. We're going to, that's right. You know, those are some tough words, right, Lydia? And you hear, I'm going to tell on you. That's what they said to Pilate. We're going to tell. We're going to cause all kinds of problems for you because you're not a friend of Caesar. Pilate did not want that. He didn't want an uprising. So he sits to, quote-unquote, judge Jesus at the stone pavement. He mocks Jesus one last time, and he hands Jesus over to be crucified in spite of two gigantic items. And we need to see this in here. He hands Jesus over to be crucified in spite of two huge things. Jesus was innocent, and Jesus may or may not be the Son of God. And Pilate is willing to say, you know what, I don't care. it's not worth it to me. Whether it's true or whether he's the son of God, because there's something I love more. It's horrific. Our hearts are stirred. You ever see these stories on the news where somebody gets released from prison after 40 years in prison because DNA evidence overturns? They say, no, that wasn't your DNA. We found out it was somebody else. You were falsely imprisoned. Do you ever see those stories? I bring tears to your eyes, right? Like the injustice and yet the beauty and, and you know, the thankfulness that we have that finally the name of an innocent person has been cleared. And here, imagine if the judge received the DNA evidence but still decided to execute those falsely convicted. He said, "Ah, yeah, I know. Yeah, no, it couldn't have been him. But kill him anyway. Now imagine that person was someone who had never done anything wrong at all. Now imagine that person is God-made flesh. Now imagine that person is the one who made all of us. Pilate was willing to do it because Jesus was a threat to what he held most dear. His power, his prestige, his reputation. Not truth, not what was right, 
not what was good, not a sincere trial. Pilate knowingly put an innocent man to death because he loved his power. And he would do whatever it took to protect it. Where in your life do you ignore or deny what is true so that you can get what you want? Where does truth become inconvenient in your life to the extent that you silence it so you can have what you want most? What is it that you are so fiercely protective of that even if it meant consenting to the murder of Jesus, you would do it? If it meant that you could have this. What areas of your life, when poked and prodded at, bring you to the point of saying, I'll do whatever it takes to keep this? God, you can have this other stuff, but you can't have this. This is mine. Pilate was willing to sacrifice even the truth to keep what he held most dear. Likewise, we find the Jewish leaders and the crowd that had gathered at the praetorium fighting to protect what is most important to them. They're yelling, crucify him, twice in this passage. Verse 6, verse 15. Crucify him. He had made himself out to be the son of God, which was punishable by death under Jewish law. Unless, what? It was true. The Jews were powerless to carry out their own laws, so they needed Pilate to execute justice for them. They persuade Pilate by way of threat, as I said. They prevail over Pilate and get an innocent man sentenced to death. What a victory for them. And Jesus makes it clear in verse 11 that the Jewish leaders who had greater culpability than Pilate. Look at that in verse 11. You, he says, uh, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Who is the he who delivered me over to you? Very likely he's talking about Caiaphas, the high priest, as a representation of the Jewish people. He who handed me over to you has the greater sin. How this works out in God's economy is uncertain. But greater revelation and greater position equals greater responsibility and greater culpability when things go wrong. We will all be held accountable before God based on what we have heard and been entrusted with. These leaders had been entrusted with the very words of God. Do you realize that these people who handed Jesus over, they prided themselves as the keepers of the temple. They saw what happened in the Old Testament and they were, they were resolved in their hearts and minds that will never happen again because we're going to protect this temple so fiercely. They were entrusted with the words of God and the people of God and they handed over the Son of God to die. It is one of the negative climaxes in all of Scripture that the people of God lack the ability 
to recognize when he is in their midst. His chosen people choose to hand him over to death. Your religious heritage profits you nothing if you reject Jesus. Please understand that today. You are not made right with God because you are the child of so-and-so or come from the family of such-and-such. And while Pilate made his compromises to protect his power, the Jewish people did the same. It was the day of preparation of the Passover, the day before the Sabbath of Passover week. And as Pilate sits on his judgment seat, giving approval to the death of the Son of God, and he says to the Jews, again, behold, he said, behold the man, now behold your king. Again, mockery. Look at your king. Much as they had appealed to the name of Caesar to convince Pilate to crucify Jesus, here Pilate turns the tables on them and says, Behold your king. And what do they say in response? Go ahead, say. We have no king but Caesar. No king but Caesar? These words cut like a knife. Since the day we left the Garden of Eden, we have found it natural to reject the Lord as our King. The people of Israel had a long and storied history of being shown great mercies and rejecting God as their King. The chief priests stood here in this moment, at this time, and said, we have no King but Caesar. They hated Caesar. They hated him. Caesar represented oppression and inability to self-govern. But the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Caesar was an ever-present looming threat to the Jewish people. The things that would happen at the hands of Rome in the coming years to the Jewish people are unspeakable. But Jesus was a threat to their very existence. Jesus overturned the temple tables. Jesus was not for them in the way they thought he would be. Jesus taught with authority unlike them. Jesus healed. Jesus loved. Jesus challenged. Jesus was going to take away their prestige. Jesus was going to take away their position. They loved their position. They loved being well thought of. They loved when people would give them greetings as, and bow the knee to them. They loved that. They loved positions of honor. They loved when everyone uh, made much of them, when everybody noticed them, when they made their phylacteries wide to show how much they knew and how much better they were than everybody else, when everyone stood in awe of them. They were the guardians of the temple and they were so good at it that they even kept God out. Three times in this passage, 
the identity of the man they are about to crucify is mockingly affirmed. And they missed it. Behold the man, the son of God. Behold your king. They missed it. Or worse, they knew it. And they wanted him dead anyway. Do we have a religion that would thrive without the presence of Jesus? Maybe one that is even threatened by Jesus? We should ask ourselves this. We can build great systems and great structures. We can be admired by many. We could be the envy of other Christians or other churches. And if what we have is built on some self-centered, self-glorifying foundation, then we will act violently when confronted by even the words of Jesus. That can be a personal or corporate issue. It applies to church leaders and church members. If the ministry of Jesus angers you in some area of your life, maybe. Maybe you're reading the words of Jesus and you say, I don't like that. I don't want that. That's not fair. That's not good. If the ministry of Jesus angers you because it seems too confronting or too merciful or too gracious or too opposed to your own personal agenda... You need to examine yourself. If your hope is built on personal prestige, you must repent. These Jewish leaders lived for their prestige to the point that they were willing to kill the Son of God to keep it. So what do we do when we see parts of that in ourselves? Maybe we're not, you know, we're saying we're believers in Christ. Many of us in here, most of us in here are believers in Christ. But yes, I see that. God exposes parts of my heart, parts of my flesh that still war against Him. That still say, I like to keep my thing. I don't want to give this part of my life to Him because this is more important. What do we do when those things get revealed to us? I say, brothers and sisters, I say, friends here, maybe you're here and you don't believe in Jesus. And the call to all of us is the same. We do what Pilate tells us to do. Behold the man. Jesus appears to be the object of most of what is happening in this passage, right? He is flogged. He has the crown of thorns placed upon his head. He has the purple robe placed on his body. He is mockingly hailed, then struck. He is put forward for public display and shaming. He listens to the crowd shout for his death. Do you notice the thick irony in this passage? Do you see that when you read this passage? How many of the things in this passage that are done in mockery reflect actual truth? Crowned. He's crowned. He is robed. He is hailed. He is beheld. He deserves all of it. Sadly, it was because he was being beaten, mocked, scorned, and handed over to death. Here Jesus is, the picture 
of a pathetic life brought to a tragic end. He is at the mercy of the Jewish leaders and at the mercy of Pilate. Except he's not. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Does that describe this passage? Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This innocent man is not simply the passive object of what's happening. As a matter of fact, he makes clear to Pilate that whatever authority Pilate has in this moment comes from the hand of God. You'd have no authority over you or in your life unless it was given to you by God. It's good for us to remember that in the world that we live in, right? God has his hand in every nation, in all authorities. And Pilate here was put in place for this reason. By God, for this moment, yes, these events are happening to Jesus, but they are not separate from the will of the Father and the Son. They are happening by the hand and plan of God. Jesus is publicly displayed again in verse 13. I flipped away from... My passage, verse 13, put on public display. And did you know, as we read, maybe you did, maybe you didn't. I'm going to bring up the controversy. That it says it happened at about the sixth hour. And did you, as you studied, say, hey, wait, Mark says it was about the third hour. Is there a contradiction in the Bible? No. I'll say more. Uh, Third hour and sixth hour, scripturally speaking, are rough estimates, which would have been common in conversation and regular writing of the day. Search the scriptures to see if anywhere in the scriptures you can find the term fourth hour or fifth hour. I'll tell you, you can't, because it's not in there. Which, so that typically they're referring to the days by the daytime as third hour, sixth hour, ninth hour, twelfth hour. The only exception that I saw in Scripture, maybe you can correct me if you think of others, is the parable that Jesus tells about the worker in the workers in the vineyard, the laborers in the vineyard. And that gives all the more significance to the 11th hour to say, it's, we never say 11th hour. Last second, the Lord was merciful. Maybe there's others. You can point them out to me. But all that to say, third and sixth hour are rough estimates, but also I want to say... Uh, while they are rough estimates, 
John is probably also trying to draw our eyes to something else. He said it was the day of preparation for the Passover, so the Sabbath Passover uh, of the Passover. At the sixth hour, do you know what they would be doing on that day? They'd be slaughtering lambs. John may very well have wanted to focus on the sixth hour because during the Passover, the the sacrificial lambs would be slaughtered. So the reference to the day of preparation immediately followed by the sixth hour might lead the Jewish mind to the slaughter of the lambs, and that is precisely what is about to happen. The lamb was about to be slaughtered. Jesus became the object of the mockery, the false accusations, the beatings, and death. Why? Because he's exactly who they said he is. He is the king, king of kings, lord of lords. He is the man, the man who would bear disgrace so that we might know life. He is the Son of God. Jesus stated His purpose in chapter 12. Why is this all happening? He says in 1227, Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify Your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Jesus does what he does, submits to what he submits to, that the Father in heaven may receive great glory specifically by drawing a people to himself through the death of Jesus. Through this death. I don't know what you mean by. I'm going to tell you what I mean by it. <laughs> through this death. The Lord would cast out the ruler of this world. Satan would be defeated. Sin would be judged. And death would not have the final word. Is Pilate in charge here? Are the Jewish leaders in charge here? The answer is no. Jesus meekly submits because it is part of God's plan to triumph over sin and death and hell. And most astoundingly of all, He was doing this for the likes of them and us who contributed to his being killed. He was doing this for people who live for the kingdom of self, who ignore what is true to love what is easy, who are willing to put the truth himself to death in order to preserve our own kingdoms. Jesus died for you. Do you know that? Jesus died for you. He submitted to this for you. Even today, 
most rebellious of sinners. Maybe you're here today and saying, no, I do not believe that, or I have not believed that. Even today, maybe you're saying, the things that I have done, there would not be mercy for me because you don't know what I have done. You don't know what I did last night, what I did this week, what I've done in my past. There would not be mercy for the likes of me. Behold the man. By his wounds we are healed. They didn't recognize, but he was dying for them. The Apostle Paul referred to himself as what? The chief of sinners. He thought there would be nobody who could be as bad as I have been. Do the things that I have done, and yet I received mercy. So that every person he preached the gospel to, he believed there is nobody beyond the reach of the mercy of God. Not a soul. Nobody that I can look at their, their circumstances, their life, and say, God is merciful, but he ain't that merciful. The death of Jesus teaches us that the most rebellious of sinners, the most heinous of sins, can be forgiven by the blood of Christ. Behold the man, behold the Son of God, silently going to death so that you may know eternal life. Forgiving our sins by becoming our sacrificial lamb. And then, not to give away the ending, rising triumphantly. Death could not hold him. Sin was paid for. Death was defeated. Brothers and sisters, today we too must look. Where have we banked our hope? Where have we sought our joy in the kingdom of self? Where are we denying what is true? to advance our own cause. Behold the man. Behold your king. Behold the Son of God. He died that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. He bids us come to him again. Turn from that which does not profit. Rest in him. Find mercy and grace to help in your time of need. Behold the man, the Son of God, the King of kings, the object of scorn, so that those who deserve such scorn might receive mercy. He wore a crown and a robe of mockery that we might wear crowns and robes of mercy. What love is this? Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the work of our Lord Jesus, who is the truth. This is not a fairy tale, but it is true. Lord, if today there are some in this room who have never believed in Jesus, I pray that they would behold the man and see the offer, forgiveness of sins, cleansing from unrighteousness, wearing robes of righteousness, not, not just now but into all of eternity, separation from God, solved, peace with God through His sacrificial work. Lord, where we are clinging to areas of our lives, saying you may not have this. Show us, Lord, 
Help us to repent and entrust all areas of life to you. And to know that when we do turn, we find a merciful Savior. One upon whom we can cast all of our burdens. Thank you, Jesus, for submitting to a death like this that we might have the hope of real life and forgiveness. We pray this in your name. Amen.